Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. Poor Humpty Dumpty. He had nowhere to go to become whole again. Many lives like Humpty Dumpty are shattered, broken, and scattered into many pieces. Unlike Humpty, we can be put back together again. There is someone we can give the pieces to whose specialty is restoration. It has been said this way, in God's workshop, the sign reads, I can't fix it until it's broken. As Oswald Chambers put it, before God can use a man greatly, he must wound him deeply. In other words, it is as God crushes our self-will and breaks our independent spirit that we then see the majesty of God for who he really is. It's only as our eyes are open to the truth about sin and exposed to the ways we're going about life, trying to make, life, make it work on our own, that true brokenness occurs. We're still trying to manage. We're not broken. Where there's a deflection of blame, we are not broken. Where we excuse, downplay, minimize, justify, we are not broken. Brokenness can come not only as we experience sin in our own lives, but as we see the condition of things around us. Brokenness can come as we experience a trial or some unpleasant circumstance that hammers us down and breaks us to the point of surrender. Whatever it might be, one thing is for certain, brokenness is not an end in itself. All of it is working for our good toward completing the big picture to fit into God's plans for the purpose to which we were saved. God longs to put us back together again. His plan is that the ruins lead to restoration in order that we might be useful instruments in his hands. We can make a difference in the world because the master builder wants to rebuild our lives for his glory. He heals the brokenhearted, the psalmist declares in Psalm 147. A broken and contrite heart, God will not despise, it says in Psalm 51, 17. Well, that brings us to chapter 9 in the book of Daniel. It is in this chapter that zooms in on the ruins of Jerusalem. Due to their disobedience, they had a great fall. It was a dark time for the nation. The chosen people of God are in captivity. They are in a foreign land. They are far away from the place they would call home. And although they are in ruins in the days of Daniel, God has a future in mind for his people. Restoration is near. God has not given up on them. It's the same God that takes us from the rubbish heap to royalty, from ruins to restoration. And so as we come to the ninth chapter of Daniel, you might be more familiar with the last section, really the last four verses, than the first 19 verses or so. The prophecy of the 70 weeks and the end of this chapter usually is what gets our attention. It's that prophecy of the 77s that thrusts us forward to a future day of tribulation and promise. And it has far-reaching implications for all people. Not only in the immediate future would Israel be restored to their land and the walls rebuilt under the leadership of Nehemiah and the temple reconstructed, there will be a day 
when sin will be atoned for and that sin will be exchanged for an everlasting righteousness. At the time of Daniel's writing, the 69th week was still in the distant future when the anointed one, the the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ would come and bear the sin of the world. And as those last four verses of chapter 9 suggest, there's a final seven years that is still yet future. And and so we live in this time between the 69th week and the 70th week. It It is a gap of unspecified duration. And while all that is indeed important, our focus this morning is on the first 19 verses of chapter 9, for it speaks to the time we are in now. And we have the awesome privilege of listening in on someone else's prayer. We are eavesdropping on the prayer life of no small-time man of prayer, Daniel. And I'll be honest with you, after reading this prayer, I did not feel like a prayer warrior, but a prayer wimp. We've already seen that it was Daniel's practice to pray. He prayed before attempting to interpret the king's dream back in chapter 2. It was in chapter 6 that we saw his already established discipline of prayer that he would not alter one bit, even if it meant he would end up as some meal for some hungry lions. But it is this marvelous, profound prayer in chapter 9 that gives us another window to Daniel's heart. And we can learn much about prayer from this chapter, not by precept, but by example. And so let's look at Daniel chapter 9, and it is intercession at its best. You want to learn about intercessory prayer? Go to this chapter. Look at chapter 9, the book of Daniel. We see a broken man who cries out to God on behalf of his people. We see a broken man who cries out to God on behalf of his people. And I want to look at, first of all, what prompted this prayer And then secondly, what is the prelude to restoration? And then lastly, how we ought to pray for the church. So first, what prompted his prayer? And then what is the prelude to restoration? And then how we ought to pray for the church? First of all, let's look at what prompted this prayer. And so look with me, the opening verses of chapter 9 Verses 1 and 2. Follow along as I read Daniel 9, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation or the ruins of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And so Daniel was was reading along in the scroll of Jeremiah, likely in chapters 25 through 29 as we know it. There were no chapter breaks uh, in the scroll that Daniel was reading. But when he came across that remarkable prophecy in Jeremiah that spoke of this Babylonian captivity being 70 years. Now I remind you that Daniel arrived in Babylon when he was a teenager, somewhere between the ages of 14 and 19. At this time, he is pushing 80. Jeremiah said that the Jews would be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Now, for the sake of argument, let's say he arrived uh, in Babylon when he was 15 years old, and he is now 80 years old. That is 65 years. Now, this wasn't rocket science. The time of captivity is nearly over. 
But instead of saying, well, it's almost over, give me a rocker so I can rock back and forth with my hands folded until it's over, what does Daniel do? Well, verse 3 answers that. He says, verse 3, so I turned to the Lord God, and literally the Hebrew, it says, I set my face. It's the idea of resoluteness, fixed focus. I set my face to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God. We see a broken man who cries out to God on behalf of his people. Now, this is instructive for us on many fronts. But do you see Daniel's immediate response to prophetic truth? He prays. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this incredibly interesting that Daniel knew that the judgment was to be for 70 years, and he can do the math to figure that the time of the 70 years is nearly up, and God was about to do something for his people. He knows all that, that he's going to take them from the ruins to restoration, and since all that is true, then what's to pray for? The question I believe that this chapter addresses is why pray when God is going to do what he wants to do anyway? I mean, why pray when God is going to do what he wants to do anyway? I mean, if God sovereignly determines history, as we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, especially last week, and if God determines when nations come and when nations go, what is to be our response? What do we do? Do we just passively accept that? Well, Daniel's a beautiful example of one who is prompted to pray fervently when encountered by prophetic truth. Now, don't miss this. The point of prophetic truth is that it ought to drive us to our knees. We know, therefore we pray. We know, therefore we pray. Now, believing in the sovereignty of God should never eliminate our prayers. It should excite them. It should never lead to apathy, but to a real appetite to pray. Scripture never supports this idea as a, as a settled apathy of the sovereignty of God. We're never to have a passive resignation to God's purposes. This, this whatever will be, will be attitude. We should never be content with the way things are. We pray because we stand against the sinful status quo. We pray because we stand against the world and all its fallenness. We should never come to terms with the lostness of souls. It isn't, well, I guess they're not part of the elect. No, we rebel against their unbelief by persistent intercession on their behalf. What prompted this prayer? Prophetic truth. But there's something else instructive about these opening verses of chapter 9. Daniel's prayer was born out of an understanding of God's word, out of an understanding of God's word. I mean, it's so obvious, we might miss it. He read, he prays. For Daniel, was this reading of those passages in Jeremiah that that stirred him to pray. Does the reading of God's word drive you to your knees? If not, then why not? Is it because our reading is, is merely academic? Is it because we're not listening to what we're reading and hearing? Listen, if you can read the word of God and not be driven to prayer, then you're not listening to what you're reading. That is why it makes sense to pray with our Bibles open. What prompted Daniel to pray was the prophetic truth. What prompted Daniel to pray was exposure to the word of God. Are you exposing yourself to the word of God? Are you looking at God's word? Are you reading God's word? 
When their son left for his freshman year at Duke University, mom and dad gave him a Bible assuring him that he would need that more than any other book. As the semester went on, he would email them asking for money, and they would always email back, read your Bible. And they would include specific portions of Scripture that he ought to read. And he would reply saying he was reading his Bible, but that he still needed money. And this happened several times throughout the semester. As he asked for money, they would say, read your Bible. Well, at semester break, he came home from college, and his parents told him they knew he wasn't reading his Bible. He insisted he was. You mean you're reading those sections of Scripture we asked you to read? Absolutely, he replied. And why do you keep asking us for money, they asked him. And they continued, we know that you're not reading your Bible because we had tucked $10 and $20 bills in your Bible in those sections of Scripture. Exposure to God's Word. Are you reading God's Word? Maybe we're afraid to read God's word because we know what it might do and might show us about ourselves. And that's what happens next, as we see here. It was that exposure to God's word that did what to Daniel? It broke him. It's what we see here. What is a prelude to restoration? The theme of this prayer is quite obvious, even to the casual observer. Daniel doesn't come to his request until the end of his prayer. Well, what is the essence of his prayer? Well, verse 4 says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, and confessed. He sure does. I mean, what is extraordinary about Daniel's prayer is the amount of time he gives to confession. Daniel recognized the need for confession as a prelude to restoration. His confession is precise. His confession is God-centered. Look at verse 5, for example. Daniel prays, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Five different ways he says the same thing. Let's continue, verse 6. He says, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. Verse 7, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. And literally, that phrase, covered in shame, is a confusion of face. It's a distorted face that comes to one in shame. Often, you can see by a person's face that there's shame there in their life. Verse 8, O Lord, we and our kings, our princes, and our fathers are covered with shame. There's that phrase again. Why? Because we have sinned against you. Verse 9, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God, he says in verse 10. Verse 11, he says, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. And he sums it up by saying at the end of verse 15, we've sinned and we have done wrong. All right already, Daniel, we get the point. The people of God have sinned. Does he have to keep saying it and saying it and saying it? I mean, really, Daniel, do you have to get that upset about sin? Reminds me of the story of the man who went to his pastor to confess how for years he'd been stealing building supplies from the lumberyard. What did you take, the pastor asked. Well, enough lumber to build my home and enough lumber to build my son's house. And oh yeah, and enough lumber to build houses for each of my two daughters and, and my cottage at the lake and our boathouse. Well, this is very serious, the pastor replied. You, you're going to need to make this right. 
But first, you need to get away by yourself for a time of reflection to come to grips with what you have done wrong. Have you ever done a retreat? The pastor asked. The man paused and then replied, No, I haven't, but if you get the plans, I can get the lumber. Now, I don't believe this man was sorry enough to quit. He wanted to continue with what he was doing. And all too often, that's the nature of our confession. All too often, our confession has more to do with admitting we've made our life miserable. But the issue, however, is admitting that there's something much worse than our misery. The issue is the offended holiness and glory of God. We should feel miserable because sin has made our life miserable, yes, but go one step further to feeling broken because our sin offended the holiness of God and brought reproach to his name. Time and time again, Daniel speaks of concern here for God's name. Do you see it? Verse 15. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt, who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. Verse 18. Daniel says, Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We see it again at the end of verse 19. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Do we share in Daniel's concern for God's name? Do our prayers reflect greater concern for our comfort or for his name? Daniel was burdened over the thought that the people of Judah had become a byword to those who passed by. They were chosen, they were set apart to display the beauty of the Lord. Yet they had become an object of scorn to those in their world. And that is what drives Daniel to his knees more than anything else. The question, the question that comes out of this is do we share the same passion? Do we share the same passion? When the name of Christ is mocked, when the name of Christ is ridiculed, when the name of Christ is dragged through the mud, does it grieve our hearts? Believer, you have been redeemed. You have been saved to display the beauty of the Lord. You bear his name. When you came to Christ, that is part of the deal. You bear his name. You might not have thought you signed up for that, but you did sign up for that in becoming a child of God. You bear his name. We had to show the world his beauty, show the world that we are trophies of his grace. Now, if we're going to be difference makers in our world, if we had to understand the power of a life sold out for him, then we need to get a grip on confession as a way of life. We need to be broken people. We need to be broken people over the condition of our nation. We need to be broken people over the state of the church. We need to be broken people over our own stubbornness that wants its, wants its own way. You see, confession is a prelude to restoration. We want the restoration part. We want the blessing part, but we don't want to pass through confession. You know, we must. We must. Max Lucado speaks of the importance of confession this way. Listen to what he says. He says, Confession does for the soul what preparing the land does for the field. Before the farmer sows the seed, he works the acreage, removing the rocks and pulling the stumps. He knows that seed grows better if the land is prepared. Confession is the act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our hearts. Will you invite God to walk the acreage of your heart. Well, what might he find there? 
Oh, the rock of greed that, that won't budge. Or the stump of guilt that is stunting your growth. Or the root of bitterness that's strangling any signs of life. Oh, might he find some dry soil too crusty for seed? Seed of God's word grows better if the soil of the heart is cleared. What do you need to clear? What do you need to clear away through confessions that the seed of God's word can take root in your life or if the seed of God's word keep bouncing off of you? What words do you use in your confession? How do you describe your wrongs? You see, if you don't name it, you can't change it. God specializes in restoration, but will you give him the broken pieces? Martin Luther, back in 1520, wrote an essay entitled The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And my understanding of of what he wrote is that the culture had captured the mind and the heart of the church. I believe he was saying that many foreign ideas and forces and powers have placed the modern church in captivity and bondage. And he wrote that in 1520. If that is what he concluded about the church in 1520, what would he say about it today? All too often, much of what we do and much of what we believe come more from what is absorbed from our culture, and I would add even the subculture of Christianity, than from the Word of God. So much of the Christian church today has become a desolation of disobedience, disunity, and dishonor to the name of Christ. And so I want to close our time in the ninth chapter of Daniel with this third point, a uh, third question. How do we pray for the church? How do we pray for the church? There's one other crucial element in this fervent intercessory prayer that I don't want us to miss. I almost had it as the entirety of this sermon. But I just want to bring it as the final point here, but a very critical point. And perhaps you've already been thinking about it. Have you noticed the pronouns Daniel uses in this prayer? Well, instead of speaking of they or you, he speaks of we. Daniel does not elevate himself above his people and sit there like a critic saying, this person's doing wrong and that person's doing this and this person over, that, over there is doing that. Daniel will have none of that. I don't want us to miss the solidarity in this prayer. Now, this is extremely hard for the Western mind to comprehend. We, we go to God as if we exist on some island. We go to God with, with our list of petitions which are to satisfy our own desires. Well, Daniel is so engulfed in the solidarity of the people that their failures are his failures. Now, here's a test. Here's a test. I've given this that test to myself and will continue to do so. Think on this with me. When is the last time you prayed this prayer or something to this effect? When is the last time you prayed this prayer or something to this effect? Lord, you know my needs. You you know what's going on in my life. But whatever you do, Lord, may it benefit the church. Come on, be honest. When is the last time you thought that way as you'd had your your morning devotions, as you had your personal time with the Lord? When is the last time you said, Lord, whatever you do in answering this prayer, may it be for the good of this body. I'm not asking you, Lord, for anything that would diminish the rest of the church family. Lord, I don't want you to do anything in my life that would in some way affect others negatively at First Baptist Church. Now, how radical is that? 
How radical is that kind of thinking? Don't isolate me, Lord. I only want you to do what benefits my church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're in this together. We're in this together. We triumph together. We struggle together. Someone's struggling. We struggle with that person. We're in this together. I want you to to check out this clip from the movie Coach Carter. I I believe it will be self-explanatory. Just watch this as it's run. All right, that's it for today. We have a game tomorrow, so get some rest tonight. And remember, ties and jackets tomorrow. Clay. Mr. Cruz. I'm impressed with what you've done. But you came up short. You owe me 80 suicides and 500 push-ups. Please leave my gym. Thanks, Clyde. Gentlemen, see you tomorrow. I'll do push-ups for him. You said we're a team. One person struggles and we all struggle. One player triumphs, we all triumph, right? I'll do some. I'll run suicides too. I do some too. Fine. Let's keep count. Call me when they're done. Whatever happened to when one suffers in the body, we all suffer. This whole identification concept in the New Testament is so lost today. I can't really pray, Lord, straighten out your church without saying, straighten out me in the process. I can't really say, oh, that's his problem and it's not mine. Because if we speak of the condition of the church, we know we are part of the problem. Now, we just read the scriptures. You just heard the word of the Lord. Well, how should we respond? Well, what did Daniel do after reading the word of God? And he prayed. Daniel read the scriptures and he was prompted to pray. We too have read and heard the scriptures this morning. And so I want us to respond in prayer. I want us to respond by praying for the church, then sing a prayer to the Lord, followed by obedience to continue with confession as a way of life. And so I invite you 
I invite you to pray. You can pray silently. And if it's silent in here, that's fine. Or if you offer a prayer out loud for us to listen on, that's fine too. But remember, let your prayer be we and not you or they. It might be a prayer of confession. It might be a prayer from Scripture. Philippians 1, Ephesians 1 really help us there. It can be a prayer of hope for restoration to come. But whatever you pray, our greatest concern ought to be God's name, the glory of the Lord. I invite you to pray.